Hi and welcome to Policy Talks. I'm Dr. Arushi Jain, the Policy Director of the Bharti Institute of Public Policy and I have with me a very eminent guest today. Welcome uh, Dr. A.K. Sivakumar to our studios here today. In this Policy Talk, we are going to talk to you about your experiences in the social sector. Uh, you have been uh, a practitioner and an academician and you have spent a uh, a number of years uh, looking at how social policy has evolved in the country. So can you please uh, throw some light on your experiences relating to social policy? Thank you, Arushi, and I'm delighted to be here. If I reflect back on, let's say, even 30, 40 years when I started working in the sector, on some of the changes that have taken place in the field of health, school education, women's empowerment, and so on, I see extraordinary changes. I see things that I would not have ever imagined in the start of the 1990s that India could have achieved so much. Even take schooling. I mean, when we started doing surveys of schools in India, it was the same old story. Children not being enrolled, dilapidated school buildings, lack of facilities, and so on. But if today you see what has been achieved, it's incredible progress. So you have almost more than universal school enrollment at primary level, catching up at the middle school, secondary level, and every year we are seeing a progress. Uh, partly because the infrastructure has been built up, but partly because parents themselves have realized that school education is so critical for the future of their children. Having said that, I think we are still battling a huge challenge. Of course, there's a question of equality, which means that not all children are getting the same type of education, issues of equity, there's issues of quality of education. But the real issue today is uh, one has to understand that uh, enrollment does not necessarily mean uh, attendance. Attendance does not really mean participation. Uh, and participation does not really mean learning. And I think the gap between enrollment and learning is still very high. Uh, it is not because uh, children are not attending classes, but it's the way we are uh, giving or providing education to school children. So I think there's still a huge transformation uh, required in that space of how do we really engage with children to provide them with meaningful education. Complicating the entire scenario is this high ed tech which has come in with all kinds of uh, attractive offers uh, to very poor families saying, you know, you sign up for this, sign up for that, this is guaranteed, that is guaranteed, which is worrying because at some level, digital technology in education is necessary because it expands the reach and access of uh, basic school education to a lot of children. But the worrying part is that you also don't have an opportunity to interact, think, and, and engage with somebody on what is it that you're really learning. True. I, th I think the creativity part of it also. Absolutely. The creativity, the innovativeness. And by the way, if you look at the literature, since we're talking about social development, there's a lot of association between school education, particularly girls' education, and improvements in child nutrition, improvements in child mortality, and so on. And people have often asked, what is it in the school system that makes it happen? Because these children, or many of them, are not going to the greatest of schools. The textbooks, we don't know, are telling you what to do. But the critical element that is common across many countries of the world when children go to school is the process of socialization. Right. When children sit together, talk, and then engage, 
get into that curiosity. How did you do this? How did you find out? Who told you, etc.? And it is this curiosity, the inquiring mind comes through socializing, which is what I fear will happen if you get onto online education all the time. And right. so many of the benefits of schooling per se might be lost if we suddenly put too much thrust on a digital education. Completely agree, completely. And you know, if you look at the role of the welfare state, you know, the constitution talks about the right to education. But if we look at it today, almost 50% of the children are going in private schools. Uh, those are the children who have the facilities, who might be, you know, above when we talk about the digital divide, these are the people who have all sort of facilities, but then there are the other half. So how do you bridge that gap? And what do you think is the role of the welfare state in today's context? I think, Arushir, this is an extremely important question. And I think it's for all of us as a, as a society to reflect on it. Today, the reports are telling us that over 50% of India's children are going to private schools. And a majority of them, almost 70, 80% of them would be in low fee schools that charge you 500 rupees, 1000 rupees. And we can imagine what kind of education those children are getting. Now, for a poor family to pay even 500 rupees a month for two children or three children is an expense. And so while the constitution says we will provide you free schooling of good quality up to the age of 14, that is not happening. So there is a lot of out-of-pocket expenditure on private schooling that poor families are having to bear. But the paradox of it is this. India is a lower middle income country. Our per capita income is $2,150. And 60% or 50 to 60% of our children are private schools. In the United States of America, where the per capita income is $70,000, hardly 10 to 12% of children go to private schools. Where in the richest of countries, you have... Uh, very well-to-do families sending their children to government schools. Why is it not happening in India? And so that's what I say that when you talk about the role of the welfare state, and it's particularly state governments, by the way, because education, school education becomes a state subject, it is really necessary for state governments and the center to rethink and say, we will have the finest government schools in the world. And once you invest in that and all children come to government schools, what an extraordinary saving it will be for families, poor families. And the quality of teachers in government schools, the assurance of textbooks, the assurance of many facilities are conformed to the Right to Education Act. So there are guarantees that your child going to a government school will have these provisions that should be met. As against unregulated private schools, we have no idea what they are being taught, who's teaching them. Yes, they all have qualifications according to the Act, but that's not the point. The point is accountability of uh, private school providers is poor. Whereas if it's a government school, even you and I, Arshi, when we do surveys, can walk into a government school and ask the principal what's happening, why are their children absent? Because ultimately, as taxpayers, they all recognize that it is our school. So I think that is the big shift, I hope, that when we celebrate 100 years of uh, independence, uh, in, we are now at 50-60% of private schooling, uh, that number comes down to about 10-20%. That would be the sign of an advanced nation. True. I think completely agree with what you were saying. And I can, uh, you know, little add on here that there is a trust issue. 
if that trust issue is bridged between uh, the parent who's trying to send the child to a government school, I think that is the gap that needs to be addressed. And that trust can be bridged with, uh, that issue can be bridged with quality education, a little bit better infrastructure if that can be provided, so that uh, all the government schools are equated with the private schools. And we have examples from the states uh, recently, you know, we have had traditionally uh, hill states who've been performing very well, or Kerala in terms of education, but the newer states, Punjab, Maharashtra, that are coming on the top of the recent indexes like the PGI index and others have also performed and have started performing very well apart from the southern Indian states. Absolutely right. And I think there are several examples like you point out of state governments taking the initiative and saying, hey, listen, many children are leaving our schools, government schools, because we don't provide, teach them in English yeah. or we don't have computer facilities. And they've all revamped. Kerala is a classic example. Yeah, yeah, they're very good examples. In every state, North Indian states, hill states, Himachal itself is a good example. So many states have tried to revamp and that's the way I expect our welfare state to go. Definitely. Talking about the trust side and we've, we've discussed education at length, I'll now like to move towards healthcare. Because again, that sector, two-thirds of our population is still, you know, banking on or going to the private hospitals or the private setups. How can we improve the scenario there? You know, if you ask me today, uh, th there, is a, there is a challenge on school education, but there's an even bigger challenge when it comes to taking care of the health of Indians. And I think that again is a constitutional obligation that the state has to take the primary responsibility. So when you mention, and it's right, that two thirds of people in India are accessing private sector health care, it is worrying on uh, what is happening. I say that because we are seeing extraordinary technology revolutions in, you know, we never expected that from our cell phone, we'd be sending messages, watching movies and doing banking and so on and so forth. But everyone tells me that the next big revolution is in the medical technologies with all this nanotechnology, gene technologies and all these kinds of things. A consequence of that is that life expectancy, which is around 80 years, the maximum life expectancy is 80, 85 today. Everybody, even an Indian, is going to live to be 120. Right. Now, the question is, who is going to take care of you till you're 100, 120 and years old? And the old age care. Yeah. And, and the way we are going, uh, unfortunately, is that for poor people, the government has said we are providing a health assurance, which means that either way, they, if it is an insurance program, then up to 5 lakhs, which is extraordinarily high coverage, uh, every year, uh, the government pays the insurance premium for the poor. I think it's a very good thing because many people have benefited this from this PMJY or the old RSPY and so there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not a, an approach to universal health coverage because over time, I expect this proportion of population below whatever poverty line to keep coming down. Today, if you look at there's something called the world poverty clock, it says only 0.3% of Indians are ex live in extreme poverty. So if it is 0.3% or even if it is 10% according to other studies, I'm hoping that in the next 15-20 years, by the time we are 100%, 100 years of India's independence, we will not have anybody below the poverty line. Then what is the obligation of the state? So that is where I feel a real challenge of thinking through because every uh, so-called uh, rich country today 
the private out-of-pocket expenses are not more than 15-20%. India was 60%, now the latest figures are saying about 45-46%, which is an improvement. But the question is, who is going to pay for our health care? And the insurance model, which is what the United States followed, private health care, private medical insurance, is disastrous. No country has been able to take care of the health of its population through the medical insurance plan. And now, because of Obamacare, things are changing. So the central lesson from all these countries is that you need an extraordinarily strong public sector in healthcare provisioning. So without a dominant state that takes care of providing universal preventive, primary, promotive healthcare and other forms of healthcare, we are not going to go anywhere. And that again uh, brings back exactly the parallel situation in education. And here we are saying, how do state governments now take a deep breath in the next 20 years, embrace the idea of universal health coverage and go for it? True. Uh, somehow I've also realized, you know, over time, our policies have been very reactive rather than what you're saying, we have to be proactive right now. Think about 100 years and then plan even beyond that. I think once public policy is designed in this way and the policymakers start thinking of what's it going to lead, you know, in the future, I think then the things are going to improve and especially education and healthcare have to be the focus of the country for the coming. Arshi, you're so right. For the first time, we are saying, what is the vision of India 100 years after independence? What is the vision? I mean, I can tell you today that the picture that's being painted in terms of infrastructure, airports, railway station transformations, it'll be very impressive. And I will tell you today that our infrastructure in 20 years will be the best, even better than what China has today, because we have the advantage of using technologies today that even China didn't have 30 years ago when it was building the infrastructure. Today, much of the infrastructure in America is sinking. Bridges are falling, there are potholes in Manhattan. It is because when America built the roads in the 60s and 70s, they were really the top of the technology, but they haven't reinvested. So I know that in the next 25 years, if anybody comes to India after 20 years, we'll say, my God, what a country this is. But that physical infrastructural transformation is necessary and will happen undoubtedly. But the real question is, what is it that we are doing in terms of ensuring simultaneously that along with the economic growth that will happen, how do we take care of people? What do we do with fantastic school education? Are we doing anything about improving as college education? primary health care, tertiary health care. And the crux, the underlying challenge of all this as an economist, I'll tell you, is that it's the very low levels of public spending at this point of time, both in education and in health. And, and, and that is not a question of India does not have the resources. It is not about affordability that India can't afford to invest more in health or more in education. It is a matter of priorities. And I think that is why when you look ahead and say we are planning, the political leadership is planning for what, how India will look, it's really making a firm determination and it's a political commitment uh, that we will step up public investments in both school education and healthcare. We are talking of people and you know I'm going to go that side now. India's population surpassed China's very recently and now, you know, every day we are reading about, uh, you know, the dividend that we have. 
uh, such a lot of population in the working age group. How do you think India can leverage this? And what is the future looking like? Also from the perspective of gender, if we can talk about here. Arshit, that's another very, very interesting question. And yes, there's been a lot of media attention to the fact that we have or we are going to overtake China in terms of becoming the most populous country. Let me begin by saying that India's population record in terms of lowering birth rates and fertility rates is fantastic. I mean, the national fertility rate is 2, which is below the replacement rate of 2.1. The urban fertility rate is less than 2.1. And there are only five states in India which have a fertility rate of more than 2.1. So it is an extraordinarily successful program of the government. And the credit goes that we have not used any coercion like China did of a one-child policy or not. And the disastrous consequences of China's one-child policy are staring us in the face. That they've kept changing it as recent times is not the issue. The skewed sex ratio, the high levels of uh, uh, children, girl ch children put out for adoption, the abandonment of children. It's been horrible, very sad story over there. But we have done it through what we've learned from our own states, invest in education, invest in healthcare, invest in women's empowerment, and we'll get these. So numerically, I think we don't have anything to fear. And I think they've done an exemplary job. Most states, there are one or two states, but it's only a matter of time in catching up. But the question is, have we cracked the population problem? And I say still no, we have a long way to go. Where does the crux of the population problem lie? And I'll tell you this. It is because if you look at in the National Family Health Survey, there is the actual total fertility rate. Yes. And there's something called the wanted yes. fertility rate. And the wanted fertility rate is that you go to women who have already had their, their children and you ask them if you were Where to start, if you started life all over again, what would be the ideal number of children you'd like to have? And let me tell you, across India, across the states, rural, urban, across religions, across wealth class, no woman wants to have more than two children. I agree. In fact, it's less than two. Yes. The question, therefore, is when all women want to have less than two children, why do they end up having more? Especially in a country where the family planning program has been so successful that awareness about family planning methods of contraception is extremely high. In fact, the National Family Health Survey will tell you 95-98% of men and women know about family planning practices. And so it entirely zeroes in on one question today. To me, the population problem will be solved only if women get control over fertility decisions. I agree. That is the crux of the matter. And then, since you asked me about gender, so the, it's, it's a women's problem. How do women get control over fertility decisions so that they know how, you know, the husband and wife jointly decide and not other people deciding on whether you should have a son or a Family. daughter. I don't think any mother, any mother cares whether it's a boy the, or a girl. Yeah. And it's not that. So how do you do that? It comes by educating the mother, by creating extraordinary employment opportunities for mother, and by empowering women, in generally speaking. So, so these very investments, so investing in mother's health or adolescent health, mother's nutrition, mother's employment opportunities, etc. These are the very investments that will also boost economic growth. 
So there's nothing special. I mean, if you look at why is India faring or why are some states doing better than this other states, the better performing states in terms of per capita income have much better indices, indicators of health and education. So the population question is this, take care of people and population will take care of itself. So you really don't have to go after the numbers. We are on the right track. The challenge today is to empower women in particular create job opportunities for them. I mean, we talk about declining female labor force participation. There is a discussion on whether it's being measured properly. Mm. It's a valid discussion. But the honest fact of the matter is women are caught up so much in household work. The pressure, the care economy is entirely unpaid and carried forward by women. There are very few work opportunities for women being created around spaces where they live. It's easy for a man to get onto a scooter or a motorcycle and go away 10 kilometers to work. It's not easy for our women. There's a question of safety, safety in terms of commuting to the workplace and in the workplace itself. So I think the next 20 years, if we really concentrate on what, uh, what the priorities are for women and genuinely uh, take the slogan of women-led development seriously, uh, then I think we would have had a major uh, not just an economic breakthrough, but the social transformation of India as well. And from what we've discussed, I can also see a big role, huge role of women in the two sectors that we've discussed, both education and healthcare. You said, you know, women are the caregivers. I think we can leverage all of that with our aging population, with the healthcare jobs that are available, education sector already, women have a very, very good representation. How can we leverage all of this together and probably look at the 100 years of India's independence and the growth story there? Absolutely right. So I might, I might end by saying that you know, the future of India, the economic transformation of India, the social transformation of India, and to really make India a country which is much more prosperous and peaceful hinges on how we treat our women and the opportunities we create for young women uh, to grow and, and really lead this country forward. Thank you so much, Shiv, for such a wonderful discussion, such amazing insights that we got from you. Thank you so much for being at the ISP studios today. Thank you, Arshi.